to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannonia Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. I'm here with Michelle McHugh, who spent more than a decade in television news, won six regional Emmys, and is a program director for Drexel University's Television and Media Management Graduate Program. And we're going to be talking about media literacy. Hey, Michelle. Hi. Let's get literate. Okay. I always like starting with roots. When did journalism get you in its grasp? Or maybe you got it in your grasp. So I started undergrad at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. I'm from North Carolina mm-hmm. originally. And I started as a French major. Oh, interesting. Um, always wanted to move to France, wanted to immerse myself in the language. Got in my first class and realized that I don't know enough French to cut it right now. <laughs> so I started looking at classes in communications and quickly found my way to broadcast journalism. I had an internship at WGHP in North Carolina, mm. in High Point, North Carolina, and that's when it really clicked with me that, oh, this is something I really, really could see myself doing, telling stories, communicating with people, educating people, kind of being a warrior for truth, if you will, Mm -hmm. which is really what old school journalism is all about. And still, the real, true, pure journalists still have that mindset as well, like just uncovering the truth for people. And that's when it really clicked. I started writing. I started producing newscasts. And I just kind of found my love and my passion for writing and writing facts. Can you talk a little bit more about the work of putting together a story, particularly for broadcast? You just talk to people, right? (laughs) I mean, it sounds simple, but you have an idea for a story. Usually it's because of something you've read or something you've heard. You've kind of explored it on your own a Mm. little bit. You've determined, okay, this would be a good story. For television, it has to be something that's visual. So you have to make sure there are pictures, pretty pictures to go with it, and sometimes not pretty, unfortunately. But it's really just talking to people and trying to get as many different voices as you can to corroborate what you think is happening. And a lot of times you'll find out that what you thought when you started with the story is not necessarily how it ends up. And if it's a story that has any kind of legal ramifications or could, then you make sure that you back that up with evidence from whether it's an authority figure, a police officer, a PIO, public information officer, or if it's a hospital, Mm -hmm. someone who's in PR there who's charged with making sure that you're getting the facts that the hospital wants to give out. Mm -hmm. And that gets fuzzy as well because then you also have to go in and and confirm all of that because a lot of times people will tell us, whether it's just in conversation, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's actually an official press conference, they'll just tell you the nice shiny parts that Mm -hmm. they want you to know. (laughs) And I liken that to the Facebook world, right, or social media world. We we don't necessarily put all of our ugly stuff on social media. (laughs) We polish things up to put them on social. And I think a lot of times we get sucked into that idea that oh my gosh Melinda's life is so amazing she has nothing (laughs) negative going on and look at me over here and it's this fallacy of what life is really about yeah there's a really great Portlandia sketch of people watching like somebody else's social media feed and they're on vacation and then they decide that they're going to do the same thing and they don't have a good time at all everyone on the internet they're not having as great a time as you think they are I guess people are just cropping out all the sadness. Which I think is is poignant because you are not going to put on your warts and all. 
in right. these social media spaces for people to consume. Which and some people weird. do, and then yeah. that gets uncomfortable, right? We've yeah. all seen those posts that are just like, oh, that's so sad, but I don't really want to read that right now because <laughs> it make, it's bringing me down. Yeah. So I understand why people do it. And I love social media. I don't want anybody to think that I'm like a Facebook <laughs> yeah. hater, an Instagram hater. We're taking down the metaverse with this Exactly. Podcast. This is it's just going to implode yeah. right after this. Is this is what they're going to say on Reddit. I know. Yeah. It's scary. Back in the day, you could just watch that one newscast or read the paper and know that I'm educated now about what's going on in my world. Now we have all these different sources coming at us nonstop. And a lot of times it's so easy to get caught in an echo chamber mm-hmm. where you're just reading the things that you're seeking out. And so these people who are kind of getting sucked into this, they are just reading the page up and down vertically. And to really make sure what you're reading is factual, it's just so important to read laterally, which really just means open up a lot of tabs if you're browsing Mm -hmm. and try to find the same information in like three or four different places and make sure those places are reputable, Mm. right? And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. It's really difficult to filter through all the noise and the purposeful misconstrued information. I think media literacy is thrown around. I feel like a lot of people are talking about media literacy, but in terms of defining media literacy, what are we talking about? I mean, to me, it's about making sure that what you're consuming is factual. And to do that, making sure you're taking that deep dive that a lot of times journalists take. I think back in the day, back when I was producing newscasts, Mm -hmm. before social media was really as prevalent as it is now, you could watch the evening news and know that, okay, I trust this. I know that I'm understanding pretty much what's going on in my world right now and in the broader world. As soon as that whistle blows, I'm out of here because at 5 o'clock, I want to be home with Action News. I don't punch a clock, but I still stick to a schedule, like watching Action News at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock, meatloaf's in the oven, the dog's been fed, and the kids are doing homework. Now I'm going to relax and enjoy Action News. Keep on coming home. a switch where that became like more of a thing where we went from like trained journalists to like more so pundit opinion based locally it's less I always tell people if you're going to watch a newscast or read a paper if you're in the Philadelphia area the Philadelphia Inquirer Mm -hmm. watch CBS 3 or NBC 10 or 6ABC or Fox 29 and that's been a big education piece for me for Mm -hmm. people is teaching people that the owned and operated Fox station is not Fox News Mm -hmm. two totally different things Mm -hmm. and a lot of people blur that they just can't tell the difference who do you think you are what news show did you ever produce or anything else for that matter. Mary, you don't have to be a chicken to judge an egg. <laughs> have you no sense of proportion? Criticizing a multi-million dollar movie is one thing, but to publicly attack the individual workers at a tiny television station who are simply doing the best job they can is nothing but sadistic bullying by an arrogant snob. <laughs> now hit him. I couldn't tell you when the switch really happened, but I know as we have more and more sources available, for some it has become an entertainment venue as opposed to delivering the facts and data that people need to get on with their lives day Mm -hmm. to day. Yeah, and maybe the switch has been mostly me 
noticing or as I grow older being like, this doesn't seem like the Cronkite of old. Not that I grew up with Walter Cronkite. But right. that is But it sounds the, great. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. But that was to me like when people looked back like yes. that as as like journalism. Old anchorman, you see, you don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. I'll be away on assignment and Dan Rather will be sitting in here for the next few years. Good night. This has been the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. So one thing locally, as far as your local news stations, something that one station in Philadelphia does so well, and that's 6ABC in Philadelphia, is just that consistency of who you're seeing on the news. Mm. Jim Gardner, right? Mm -hmm. And then how, when Jim Gardner retired, how there was a whole buildup of who would take his place, and it's a trusted voice and a Mm. trusted person. Serving the people, you the people of the tri-state area, with responsible and unbiased journalism, this is our mission now and in the future. And if we falter, you'd better let us know, for your benefit and for ours. Brian Taft will be sitting in this chair tomorrow night at 6, and I won't be terribly surprised if he is still sitting here decades from now. Funny how that seems to happen here at Action News. For the entire Action News team, I'm Jim Gardner. Good night. This goes back to something as simple as the theme song for the show. We all know it, right? And how recognizable it was for people for years. Decades, And at one point, Action News changed the theme song. And after the first newscast where they had the new theme song, viewers called the station. This was before (laughs) emailing the station. They called and they just lit the lines up that they didn't like the song. By the next newscast, they went back to the old song. Oh, wow. And it is still the theme song that they use today. It sounds cheesy because it's music, but it's recognizable. Mm -hmm. There's this feeling of trust It's believable, it's reliable, and it goes far from the theme song. It is, you know, the same faces you see on that newscast have been on that newscast for decades, Mm -hmm. and if they haven't, they've been woven into kind of the lineup very Mm -hmm. strategically. They're also very good at covering community events, not just the bad stuff that happens, but also the good stuff, and that's what I wish we could focus a little more on, but we've heard that term, if it bleeds, it leads, Mm -hmm. and it's very true. It's still very true. Local stations are trying to do more and more positive news, Mm -hmm. positive coverage, and 6ABC has been the powerhouse station in this market for decades. Oh, here's our first stop in Philadelphia. That's Independence Hall, and there's Ethel and the Kids, and, uh, oh, well, that's just a TV news van going by there. Oh, now here's Ethel and the Kids of the Art Museum steps. And, uh, oh, there's another one of those news vans again. Oh, there's Ethel eating one of those soft pretzels. Oh, now we took a ride up to the state capitol for a day, and I got a great shot of that news van again. Oh, now here we are going to Atlantic City. This is great. Nobody covers the Delaware Valley like Action News. And, uh, there's that news van again. There's that news van again. You know, that's <laughs> their slogan. And sure enough, they go into the communities, they do a positive story, and it always gets on the air. Stations are trying, I see them trying to swing their coverage to more of a positive. You know, mm. CBS in Philadelphia, the O&O here, has a new mantra, the heartbeat in every story. So if there's a negative story they have to cover, they're trying to find the positive side of it. So let's say there's a drug-related shooting in a certain area of Philadelphia, then they'll cover that, but then they'll also go and find that grassroots nonprofit that's trying to make a difference, especially for the children of the city and the people growing up here. Where you can meet 
the future Rockies playing hockey in the street. We've got Italian market winner spring or fall. The Jersey Shore just hears the roar of free for all. It's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. Give it a bye. For all, three for all, for all to see, all to see. This is the place we always thought it ought to be. Gotta be, the bread's so soft, the pizza's hot, the tails are tall. Let's give a cheer, let's have a beer with three for all. Are there any texts like movies, television shows, anything that you think captures the work of journalism, right? Oh, the newsroom. Yeah, there yeah. Are obviously, things are sensationalized to be in that show. But television is this, such a, it's a big world, it's a big profession, but it's a small group of people, really, who network throughout the country. Mm-hmm. There are relationships in newsrooms that kind of get in the way of judgment sometimes. There are hard decisions to make. And I think Sorkin really got it right when he showed the importance of standing up for something you believe in. There's nothing that's more important in a democracy than a well-informed electorate. I just want to make sure you know you're still on the side of the door. When there's no information or much worse, wrong information, it can lead to calamitous decisions and clobber any attempts at vigorous debate. That's why I produce the news. We're all grateful to you. You're spinning out of control. No, I'm not. You're terrified you're going to lose your audience and you'd do anything to get them back. You're one pitch meeting away from doing the news in 3D. This isn't non-profit theater. It's advertiser-supported television. You know that, right? I'd rather do a good show for 100 people than a bad one for a million, if that's what you're saying you know what you left out of your sermon that america is the only country on the planet that since its birth has said over and over and over that we can do better it's part of our dna people will want the news if you give it to them with integrity not everybody not even a lot of people five percent and five percent more of anything is what makes the difference in this country so we can do better that doesn't always happen, right? Mm. That's the Sorkinism coming into yeah. That's kind of wrapped into that Hollywood style of yeah. things. And continually pushing for truth. Continually. Anchors having an opinion isn't a new phenomenon. Morrow had one, and that was the end of McCarthy. Cronkite had one, and that was the end of Vietnam. I'm not those guys. I'm betting all my money on you wrong. You know what, kiddo? In the old days of about 10 minutes ago, we did the news well. You know how? We just decided to. And how do we evaluate reputable? Because I feel like a lot of people are like, well, I read sources from all over. I have a blog that I go to all the time from somebody that I trust, but 
it's also somebody who's like, I got this information you didn't even know existed, or this is stuff that the mainstream won't tell you, which to them makes it more reputable. So how do we evaluate reputability? That's a great question because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. I would think first you would start with those .edus, .orgs, and the other places you can go is just making sure that you're going to some of the more, and I say reputable because I feel like I know what they are and a lot of people don't, but Wall Street Journal is highly ranked as being a very trusted source. Um, PolitiFact, factcheck.org, Pointer is an institute based on journalism Mm. that has a lot of great articles about just different things going on in the world. Mm. Any of those fact check sites, I go to Snopes a lot of times Mm. with students, just more for pop culture things. So there's just digging involved and making sure you're finding those pages. And I was just about to ask, what do you think the biggest hindrance is to media literacy? And I feel like digging might be part of it, is that it requires work. It requires a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, I've even fallen into the trap of reading something and repeating it to my husband. He's like, did you check that out? Because that doesn't (laughs) sound right. And I'm like, well, let me go look. (laughs) Maybe not. But the digging is the hard part. It takes work. It makes the person who's consuming this information, it puts the onus on them to do the work and to admit that they might not know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just become so much more prevalent in the current political environment and, you know, fake news, fake media, really those terms really had an impact on journalism and the trustworthiness that consumers feel is out there. Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed, we cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. We were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed. Do you think that there was a particular era where media literacy was like at its peak? Or has this been like an ongoing struggle that has just gotten progressively, to put it officially, wackadoo? I feel like there's always been a distrust Mm -hmm. of media, Mm -hmm. but it's been smaller. And before we had all these different places to read what other people are saying and thinking and creating, it was just kind of a small pocket that wasn't talked about as much, but now it's out there and it's allowed those wackadoos who've (laughs) always been here Mm -hmm. um, a platform and an audience. One of the other aspects that I was thinking of as I was preparing for this conversation was also thinking about who is considered a journalist because I feel like that categorization has been just thrown around of like, Joe Rogan, I'm a journalist because I have a podcast or podcasters kind of blending this line between journalism and podcasting or pundits on TV saying like, well, I'm on this show, so I'm a journalist. How does that affect these questions of like reputability or creating a sense of confusion as to how to trust sources or muddling the space of what is and isn't and who is and isn't somebody trustworthy. It is muddled. And my advice to any consumer of journalism would be to look for those people who don't give their opinions. Okay. (laughs) If you're giving your opinion on a story, then I don't feel like you can be called a journalist. Mm -hmm. A journalist is very black and white. Here are the facts. 
we're going to report them and then you as the audience member, you as the consumer, viewer, reader, whatever it is, you determine how you feel about that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many examples we could go into with these pundits on television who call themselves journalists, but that's not what a true journalist is. Yeah. Look at the time and you with places to go, people to see. How will you stay informed through your busy day? We're talking about a shift from the days of there were three or four options of where to get information, Mm -hmm. whether that was a newspaper in your neighborhood or three or four newspapers or three or four television broadcasts or three or four radio shows. That has now exploded Mm -hmm. into this metaverse that we were talking about earlier where there are endless options. I I wrote down this fact because I knew I would not remember (laughs) um, the number correctly. But according to IBM, 2.5 quintillion bytes of new data are created every day. And quintillion? That, quintillion. That equals five trillion books a day of new content. Now, that's not all news. That's new yeah. content. It can be video, pictures, words, online. But I mean, you're trying to cut through all that to try to figure out what the truth is. And it's very easy to fall into this rut of, oh, that's what I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was right. As opposed to it's hard for any of us to admit that we're wrong, right? It's just, I think it's kind I'm, of... Well, it's because I've never been well, wrong Well, yes, in my I life. could yeah. see that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. But it's very hard for... for other people. Other people yeah. to admit that, oh, maybe I wasn't right about that. Mm-hmm. So they're going to lead themselves to that voice. But we're going, talking about you're going back to your shift, It's it's we're going from three or four sources to five trillion books a day. That's bonkers. And I was thinking in terms of when you were talking about new pieces of content, I'm thinking about like how much YouTube videos, how many threads are posted, and how the algorithms, as much as we're talking about social media, create these like wormholes Mm -hmm. so that it's easier to not even have breaks to take a breath. You can just continually watch video to video to video, and there's more and more evidence of those videos getting more and more extreme. What would you say are the steps toward becoming more media literate? Like here are the starting points and like let's yeah, I think move forward. The first thing you read, the first question you should ask yourself, is it too good to be true? Is it too weird? Mm-hmm. Does it not even make sense? And then start digging. And when digging, I just mean we're all on our phones or iPads or computer or laptops all day long. Just open a few tabs mm-hmm. and start searching for whatever your favorite search engine is, search and see what you can find. And then start looking for those, what I call reputable sources. And just making sure that you can find that information repeated somewhere that's not necessarily a social media platform. Mm. Viral images claim to reveal what caused the Maui wildfires. Ariane Tilly is here to verify if those images are legit or not. The wildfires that swept through Maui are the deadliest in U.S. history in more than a century. Like, did the Maui fires really only burn things that were not blue? That mm. was a big TikTok, oh, I didn't even... TikTok hoax that a couple of people forwarded to me. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. So let's go read Fire on that a little see. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, supposedly it was a special chemical that didn't burn. Oh, anything I blue. see. Oh, yes. Yeah. Hey guys, this is the last episode I'm going to do for a while, but it should be a pretty good one. It's things that did not burn during the fire. I went through hours of footage and it was pretty interesting what I found here. Are the famous umbrellas. These are actually Tommy Bahama umbrellas. And I have pictures of these before the fire so you can see what they actually used to look like. Not very different now. And then the sole surviving car on front is part of the solution, like policy and laws that will help kind of regulate these things. Or do you think that that will push us into another potentially worse? 
well, situation. Well, that's, that's interesting because there's a fine line between regulation and control, right? Mm-hmm. We want to enjoy that freedom of speech. That mm-hmm. is one of the many things that makes America so beautiful. I think there should be some regulation. I think regulation would be better served to make sure that every American has access to the mm. Internet affordable Mm -hmm. access to the internet and that way just making sure that children can grow up learning about media literacy and lateral reading and using that on a daily basis. I think the steps that you've provided are things that are evergreen in the sense of things that we can do but how do you navigate that ever-shifting landscape? Yeah it's so hard. It's hard for me to keep up with everything Mm. that's out there. Just making sure that you're on top of things going on in the world, that you're reading that you're educating yourself, that you're not just listening to something somebody else says. Mm. And maybe take a beat before you jump on that next social media platform, you know? I think also asking, if I may add, Mm -hmm. to continually ask questions, I think is an important part of it, regardless of whether it aligns with your yeah, be, stuff or not. Yeah, be a lifelong learner. You know, mm-hmm. we love that term in academia, lifelong <laughs> learning, but it's true. We have to continually equip ourselves with information to make sure that what we're sharing with one another is true. But I also think that to go back to your earlier point about education, education has made it not fun to learn or that we've really drained the joy out of learning institutionally. So I would also like learning to be forever fun. And let's not drain yeah. the life out of it. I mean, there's some of us, and I'm going just from talking to you today, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that your classes are fun, right? I hope so. I hope mine are too. <laughs> not all the time, but most try, of the time. I at least try. Right. And I think that's like the big thing. And we have to just teach our students that learning can be fun, mm-hmm. you know? But the more teachers and professors can just relate to their students and create fun mm-hmm. moments, mm-hmm. the more the students are going to connect and not just check a box for a, an assignment. People are interested in doing their own research. But if we can guide towards the sources and the types of research and not necessarily like everything is bad except for the stuff that I want to be true, um, that would be lovely. Yeah, people are doing research. A lot of people are doing research in a way that their digging leads them to their own beliefs. Mm -hmm. And we have to be, I guess we have to dig a bigger hole and look for different pieces of evidence. Do whatever you can to get the truth. And the truth is sexier than proving or disproving. It is. That's what you did. And it also takes a big person to admit that you don't have all the answers. Yeah. And I feel like we just need to be better at saying, I don't know. That's hard, isn't it? I don't know what I think. I don't know what that's hard for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that's a great example of what we have to do as consumers, you know? Read this, read that, and then read more to come in the middle because somewhere in the middle is where those bits of truth are going to fall out. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was so great. This was awesome. Thanks. I love this. Thanks for having me. Of course. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Cantoric with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Morans-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. What are we talking about? Practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about practice, man.